And what a glorious day that will be when Christ returns, for which we are eagerly awaiting. So we're super thankful that you're here with us uh, this morning. Glad that um, you were able to come and happy Mother's Day to everyone as well. As you've noticed, I am not Pastor Scott. Um, so the uh, sermon notes in your uh, bulletin there will not apply for today, but you can keep those. Don't waste paper and reuse those later on. Um, Peyton was in the hospital, and so uh, he's with uh, family there. So we'll make sure to continue to pray for her, please. But this morning, we are going to be in an Old Testament book called Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah. So if you have your Bibles or would like one, just feel free to raise your hand, and one of our ushers will be glad to give you one. Um, so Zechariah is one of those books that you may need to use the table of contents, not one that we've turned to quite frequently. Uh, so it's almost to the end of the Old Testament, but feel free just to uh, grab a look at the table of contents and you can find it there. So we'll be in chapter 3, Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah, if we think about that book, it's, we could say it's the revelation of the Old Testament. It's that same apocalyptic language that you see in Revelation. And John frequently alludes and goes back to Zechariah uh, and expands upon that. So we'll be taking a look at chapter 3. It's, as that last song, you know, as we, as we sang there about Christ's work, what, what a glorious thought that is to think of Christ's work for us. But it may raise the question, what is Jesus doing right now for us? What's he doing at this very moment while we're here? And as we'll see today, the, the answer to that is he's interceding for us. So his intercession is ongoing, which is a glorious thought as well. So if you have your Bibles and you're able to stand, let's stand then. And we'll be reading from Zechariah chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed in filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch." For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. You may be seated. Let's pray together for this reading of God's word. Our dear Heavenly Father, we come unto you this morning thankful for our mothers. Yet at the same time, Lord, we know that even on Mother's Day, there are many challenges and trials. Um, it's not always a happy day uh, for, for people. 
But we are thankful for your intercessory work, Lord Jesus, that no matter what our experience is like, no matter what the struggles and challenges and pressures and things that we face are like, the fact that you are interceding for us continually, forever, is worth more than, than all of that. And so I pray today, Father, that all of us can come away with a greater assurance and understanding and thankfulness for your intercession, that we can grow deeper in love with you, Lord Jesus. Thank you again. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So let's uh, imagine for a moment as we begin here, we have two mothers. Mother number one, let's call her Martha, Mother Martha. Mother number two, just because I'm not good at naming things, let's just call her uh, Pioneer Patty. So Mother Martha really struggles as she's looking on social media and, you know, Pioneer Patty's her friend and she sees all these things that Pioneer Patty's doing with her kids and posting and it's really hard for her. You see, uh, Mother Martha has two children, but it just seems like they're little terrors. They're going around and they're just constantly messing the house up and she can barely keep up with them. But goodness, Pioneer Patty, I mean, she's had 12 kids, all born at home, no epidurals. I mean, this lady is amazing. And even before noon, uh, Pioneer Patty has all the children finish their schoolwork. In fact, the four-year-old has the Latin alphabet down. And her two children, um, boy, they're, they're still like learning, you know, they're still in their, the English alphabet. Pioneer Patty, she, um, she's got the kids, you know, collecting eggs and uh, doing the chores around there. Um, she's showing off the clothes that she's made from scratch, you know, the denim clothes and everything. I mean, it's just fantastic. And uh, boy, mealtime, you should see that. Uh, Mother Martha, um, she's thinking about what kind of leftovers can I cook up and reheat? And Pioneer Patty, she's showing those pic these pictures of like, it looks like a Thanksgiving feast, but this is just normal everyday meals. I mean, everything's made from scratch. You know, you wouldn't go to the store and buy a pie crust. I mean, that would be totally made from scratch. And so Mother uh, Martha uh, is just really struggling with this, way down by, oh, I just don't, how could I ever measure up to her? I mean, she just, she's got such great care of her household and running everything so well. And, and you know, my husband comes home and he looks around at this train wreck of stuff on the toys on the floor and uh, things half done and dishes still in the sink. And he's, he's asking to himself, what, what's this lady do all day? Take naps? But Pioneer Patty's husband doesn't say anything like that. He sees how the children um, are there at the dinner table, all very attentive and quiet. They never say a word unless they're spoken to. And immediately after dinner, they go and put away all the plates and wash them up and prepare everything for the next day. And Mother Martha is, uh, boy, by eight o'clock, I mean, she's just done. She's just out like a light and she feels so bad because she, you know, feels like she's always so much more she can't get done. But Pioneer Patty, wow, that woman, uh, she's up till 11, 1130, um, doing more housework and studying theology for a couple of hours uh, to head to bed for a few hours of sleep where she'll get up at 330 again and start the routine over again. Right, so I know that's a lot of exaggeration in there, but uh, some of you moms can probably relate to some of that pressure um, and expectations you even might put on yourself. And so even though our text today is not mother-centric, it's Christocentric, centered on Christ, um, I'm going to be making application in particular to, to moms throughout this. 
So moms can really struggle with um, that comparison, that guilt from not doing enough, um, just those kind of uh, things placed on them. And so we think of the work of Christ, the, the good news of Jesus Christ, as we'll be looking at today. So the main point that we're going to see today is that the intercession of Jesus Christ provides us with acceptance, confidence, and blessing. It's the intercession of Jesus Christ providing us with acceptance, confidence, and blessing. And more than a nice meal after church today, more than obedient children, even more than a spouse who loves us, we need the ongoing intercession of Jesus Christ. But given how important it is and, and how good it is and how glorious it is, the intercession of Jesus is not something that perhaps we talk about near as much as we should. Uh, it's easy to focus on those doctrines like justification and to think of the work that Christ has done for us and sort of leave it empty as to what is Christ doing for us right now. So that's what we'll be considering today through Zechariah 3. But before we get there, let's just take for a moment the question, what is the intercession of Christ? What do we mean by that? So that means that we are describing Christ's ongoing work on our behalf. It's his ongoing work on our behalf. Like I've said, we often focus on what he has done for us, his sinless life, his death, his resurrection, his obedience. Uh, but what is Jesus doing for us right now? That's, that's his intercession. So to intercede for somebody is when a third party comes in between two other parties. So we have one party, God the Father. We have the, the other party, us. And we have an intercessor, Jesus Christ, who is mediating between the two parties. Now, you might be wondering, why do we need the intercession of Christ? I mean, I thought that Christ's work was finished. Weren't his last words on the cross, it is finished? So what is his intercession doing? Is it adding something to what he hasn't done? Uh, no, it's, it's not that. Jesus isn't adding anything more. Our salvation is personal. It's not this mechanical process that's disconnected from us. It's very personal. And so the intercession of Christ is how it, it reflects his love for us. So God's plan of redemption from the very beginning was for the intercession of Jesus Christ on an ongoing basis. Again, doesn't add anything to his work, but it displays his love and help for us. Now, why would this be important? Why would this be necessary for Jesus to intercede for us? Well, it protects us from temptations and accusations of the evil one. We are uh, in, the, there's a spiritual realm all about us that we can't see. And all around in this realm, we are being attacked. And there's a constant, uh, there are constant accusations made against us. Um, we're Satan, the evil one, coming to the Father to try and discredit us, tell the Father about our sins. And so the, the mediation, the intercession of Jesus Christ is critical. Robert Murray McChaney, uh, he's a well-known um, person from the past, says this, I ought to study Christ as an intercessor. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million of enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. So his point is this, that the fact that Jesus is praying for us it shouldn't matter about the distance. Just the fact that he is praying for us 
should be what encourages us and what helps us to uh, continually press onward in hope. So we need an intercessor because God is holy and we are not, and sinful people need an intercessor to be in the presence of a holy God. We also need an intercessor, as I've mentioned, because of the ongoing attacks of the evil one. So let's then look at the book of Zechariah and think, how does this book help us understand the intercession of Christ, particularly chapter 3? So as I've mentioned, Zechariah is really the revelation of the Old Testament. It's this very highly symbolic book that addresses the discouragement and discontent that the people are facing. You see, they have been, they have returned from exile for, they've been there about 20 years in the land. They've been trying to rebuild the temple, but progress has stalled out. And now they're getting very discouraged. They're facing opposition. Uh, They're wondering, what's the use? It seems like a day of small things, chapter 4, verse 10. And so the, the feeling is, it doesn't seem like God is doing anything. It seems like he's absent. So what's the point of even trying? Why don't we just live our best life now? Do what makes us happy? I mean, if God's not doing anything, then why don't we just live like there is no God? And so Zechariah is writing to them to say, whoa, 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 that's not the reality here. God is doing things, but you just might not be aware of them. So keep pressing on, keep trusting him, keep obeying him. You see, God is going to remove all of the sin from the land. God is going to promise a branch, this this Davidic king that's been long prophesied, who would bring peace, harmony, and prosperity. The challenge is the sin in the land. The sin needs to be addressed and removed, but not just temporarily, as we've had in the past, permanently, forever. How? Well, it requires a priest to do this. And in the midst of the people's sins, they will need a better intercessor than they have had in the past. So this passage reminds us that the fight we face is not against flesh and blood, but against an unseen enemy. And it reminds us that the solution is right at hand, the intercession of Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles again, take a look. We'll be working through chapter three. Uh, I've broken it really the flow into three S's the seen, the sin, and the Savior. So just taking that flow through chapter 3. Let's start with the seen first. In other words, what's going on right now uh, here at the beginning of chapter 3? Well, the setting is this heavenly courtroom. Joshua, uh, the defendant, uh, comes in with polluted clothes. And Joshua is, as a high priest, is picturing not only himself, but also he's representing the people the land of Israel, Judah. And if the high priest is so filthy, then what does that say about the rest of the people? The angel of the Lord, he represents God's interest in the case. And then we have Satan coming in as prosecutor in the trial. So Satan is accusing Joshua of committing crimes against the Lord. And these crimes or these transgressions would have disqualified Joshua the high priest from divine service. So this setting here, this courtroom setting, heavenly courtroom setting, if you're thinking, you're probably thinking, you know, this kind of sounds like another place in the Old Testament where something like this happened. Job, where Satan is uh, trying to go after Job. The difference, though, is that in that case, Job was blameless. 
In this case, uh, Joshua the high priest is clearly not blameless. He's polluted. He's filled with sin. So there's a difference between these two passages right there. Now, just as a side note, this is not the Joshua that was uh, one of uh, Moses' comrades way back, you know, way back centuries ago, okay? Not that guy. He didn't live that long. This is a completely different Joshua. Joshua was a fairly common name. It means uh, Yahweh saves. So it's at this point, centuries later, where we have a high priest named Joshua, and Zechariah is uh, writing about this. So there's the setting. Then the sin. So Joshua, we have Joshua, we have the angel of the Lord, but they're not the only ones in the courtroom. We see Satan. His name means the accuser. And there in uh, verse 1 right there, Satan standing at, the right hand, at his right hand to accuse him. So Satan's role as accuser is to disqualify and discredit God's servants. He uh, wants, to, wants heaven to know of their sinfulness and defilement. It's like he has a megaphone. He wants to shout out to all of heaven, hey, hey, see this person, see him, see her, see him and her. I just want you to know all of heaven that this person is disqualified from the presence of heaven because of their sin, because of their defilement. So that's, that's uh, Satan's role, to, to make sure that all of heaven knows that we are disqualified. Now, to be fair, Satan has a very good case here. He has plenty of reasons to discredit Joshua the high priest. So as high priest, Joshua's role was to represent God's people, to intercede for them. So if Satan can disqualify the intercessor, then there's no one who can uh, go between the people and God. So do you see the problem right there? If Satan goes after the intercessor, if there's not a qualified intercessor, then the people have no avenue to God. So Joshua comes into the courtroom uh, with plenty of things wrong. If you look at verse 3, he's got filthy garments on. Now, there are a few verses, there's actually only a few other verses in the Old Testament that paint such a smelly and gross picture as verse 3. And throughout the Old Testament, clothing uh, symbolized a, a person's office. So royal robes were worn by kings, uh, 1 Kings 22.10. Prophets would cloak themselves in mantles, 1 Kings 19.19. 19. And the priests were to wear certain clothes, Exodus 28 and 29. So who could fathom a, a priest preparing to lead in worship while wearing filthy, desecrated garments? It would sort of be like if I had come through these side doors right here after taking a plunge in the pond and standing up here all sopping wet, moss in my hair, picking up some algae, you know, you would be like, what is this guy doing? Like, that's not the place for today, right? That's not, the, not what the person up front should look like. And so even greater, uh, it's, it's just so striking um, the way that the high priest comes in so unfit for service. The Old Testament gave a lot of attention and detail to the manner in which priests were to conduct their duties. So biblical law mandated that Aaron and his descendants would serve the Lord while ceremonially clean and clothed according to God's divine decree, Leviticus 8, verses 5 to 9. So Joshua was supposed to be wearing the required priestly clothing in order to lead worship in a manner that would be acceptable to the Lord. 
So in the Old Testament, there was no come as you are kind of a worship. People who tried that, it did not go well for them. So Aaron's two sons, if you remember that story, uh, while intoxicated, most likely, they decided to offer strange fire to the Lord. And what did God do? He killed them. So there was none of this, hey, I think I'll just come the way I am, uh, the, way, the things that I want to wear. I'll just come like that to, to worship you, Lord. You do that, and you're probably dead. Okay, so this was a really big deal, especially for the high priest to have on these dirty, filthy clothes as he comes. So he stands humiliated before the angel and before the Lord as well. Now, when it says filthy garments right there, that's not, he just got a little dusty from the, from the journey. He's got a little mud on him from some puddles. Uh, this word is poop. Okay, so it's Joshua comes in with poop-covered garments. Imagine the smell, just the audacity to do this in God's heavenly courtroom. So Satan then uh, has a legitimate case against Joshua. He has real grounds to accuse him. Leviticus 22 lays out the manner in which priests conducted their duties. And verse 3 warns, if any of your descendants is ceremonially unclean, and yet comes near the sacred offerings that the Israelites concentrate, consecrate to the Lord, that person must be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. So Zechariah 3.3 3 presents Joshua as utterly defiled, standing in the Lord's court in an official capacity as a transgressor who comes before the Lord unworthy by violating Leviticus 22.3. His defiled condition contrasts sharply with the splendor and glory of this heavenly courtroom. As we've said, Joshua represents God's people, and they too are polluted, stinking, dirty because of their sins. They stink to high heaven. And so the problem that Joshua and the people have is, how can a righteous and holy God bless and have a relationship with people who are not? Any human efforts to earn this righteousness or this right standing with God or this relationship with God just plain stink. So the question is not only the question of Zechariah, it's the question of the Bible as well. Now, notice who is in charge in God's courtroom. So we have Satan standing at the right hand to accuse him, but Satan doesn't even get a word out. Instantly, the Lord is rebuking Satan. So we don't have this picture of this out-of-control heavenly courtroom where Satan just strolls right in. All right, all right, boys, I'm here. I'm running this show. Okay, what's on the docket for today? Well, let's talk about you and you and you. And I'm going to lay out all their sins just like I want to. That is not what is going on here. Satan can't do that. God, God shuts him down. It's good for us to remember who is in charge in God's courtroom. It's good for us to remember that someone's in control of what's happening. We don't have this out-of-control courtroom uh, going on where somebody other than God is running the show. No, we have a courtroom where God is perfectly in control. And so what does the Lord do? He rebukes Satan. This idea of rebuke, it, it carries the idea way more of just a light correction. In other words, it's not, 
Now, Satan, we shouldn't be saying those mean things. No, this is a divine cursing. It's a threat of God's anger, and it shuts Satan down. So the Lord rebukes Satan by reminding him that God chose his people. God wants them. God has always wanted them and will always want them. Isn't that an amazing thought that we are wanted by God? We have been, we will be, and we forever will be. Joshua then is described as this brand or this stick plucked from the fire. That echoes Amos 4.11, which says, I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning stick snatched from the fire. So in other words, just as God rescued Lot from the burning fire and brimstone of Sodom and Gomorrah, so the Lord will rescue his people from the burning judgment of the exile. Now notice in this that Joshua does nothing to act. So it wasn't as if Joshua realizes, hey, you know what? I've got on some pretty nasty clothes right here. Maybe I ought to take a shower and clean myself up. You got a wardrobe around here, Lord, that I can uh, go look at? Find some uh, garments that the angels have? No, none of that happens. This is the work of the Lord right here. Joshua can't clean himself up. It's the angel of the Lord under the Lord's direction who gives the orders, take the filthy garments off of him. So growing up uh, here in Illinois, um, back in the day, you know, the winters could be very cold and uh, we had this breezeway to our house and it had a uh, single pane glass. And I remember as young kids, young boys, um, we, we had this gravel driveway and we were throwing snowballs one winter day. Uh, I'm pretty sure the throwing at the windows was intentional. I don't know about the part about the rock in the snowball that was intentional. Uh, but anyway, so my brother throws a snowball, uh, goes right through the window, puts a big hole in it. So he panics. Oh no, I've got to fix this before dad comes home. So he runs inside, uh, asks my mom for some tape, runs outside, puts a little piece of tape over that, realizes oh, one piece is not going to do this. I'm going to need more tape. So he goes back in and he begins to make multiple trips with tape. Now, my mom, uh, bless her, she must have been very preoccupied with uh, the other children at that time because normally if your child um, comes and asks for one piece of tape, it's like, okay, you know, fine. When they make multiple requests, your mom uh, radar goes up. What are you doing with all that tape, right? Um, So what do you think the first thing my dad said when he comes home through the door was? What's all that tape doing on the window? Andy? <laughs> so you see, my brother had this problem. He, he, he had something he could not fix on his own. His best solution was to try to cover it up, to try to patch it. What he needed was something outside of him, help outside of him to actually replace that pane of window and put a new one in. But, but he could not do that. And in the same way, Joshua and the people had that same problem. They could not clean themselves up. They could not fix it. They needed deliverance outside of them, which is where the Lord comes in. So upon removing his clothes, the angel explains the significance. The filthy clothes represent the the filthy, sinful state that Joshua and the people are in. But the Lord intercedes by taking away the filthy clothes and supplying new ones. So the Lord gives Joshua and the people a new set of righteous garments. Joshua receives not any set of clothes, not some second-hand ones that were pulled from a trash bin somewhere. 
He receives pure, rich garments. This word rich uh, here only occurs here and in Isaiah uh, 3, uh, 22. It describes especially fine, white garments. So it's this very priestly, beautiful garments that Joshua is clothed with. So we see this picture of Christ's intercessory work here. The Lord covering His people with the garments of salvation, providing for them a robe of righteousness. Now the people are forgiven and cleansed. But at the same time, this forgiveness and cleansing points forward to a future forgiveness and cleansing that will be similar yet different from the cleansing that we see here. Until this point, Zechariah has been quiet. He's watching these events unfold, and, and now he's compelled to speak. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. So the priestly hat that priest would wear bore this inscription, holy to the Lord. You see that back in Exodus 28, 36. So Satan gets a double rebuke. He's rebuked uh, by the words of the Lord and by the fact that Joshua comes in filthy, but comes away with clean clothes and a new hat given to him. None of this would have happened apart from the intercessory work of Christ. Joshua is given a very great promise, but it's contingent on the high priest fulfilling two requirements. Notice those two things there. If you will walk in my ways, and second, keep my requirements. So before the high priest can minister faithfully on the behalf of others, he himself must be personally right with the Lord. His personal spiritual life must be where where the Lord wants it. Secondly, he must faithfully obey the duties of the Lord. He must carry them out. So he must walk blamelessly with the Lord and carry out all of the commandments. If he does this, he will have direct access to the throne of God. Now the problem, as I'm sure you're thinking of, is the difficulty How is one to obey so perfectly? And the problem that we see in the Old Testament is that none could, at least to the degree that was required. Furthermore, even if they could, or even if they did, at some point that high priest would die, and then another one would be needed to take their place, and then you'd have the same problem on the next guy that comes along right there. So the Lord is providing hope here by pointing to a coming branch. Branch is one of the most common messianic titles. Uh, Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6 says this, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. So the promise of this branch is that he will remove all of the iniquity of the land in a single day. This branch will be a better branch than the current high priest's. He will remove all of their iniquities, not just some of them, and in a single day, forever and permanently. And He will continue to do this eternally. So I think you're seeing where things are going with this. Uh, right now, even though the people have a, a good high priest in Joshua has been, who has been forgiven and cleansed, there is a need for a better high priest. And it's the pointing to the one that God has promised, which is and who is Jesus Christ. So we see Christ's intercessory work uh, pictured in the Old Testament, but really unpackaged and clarified as we get to the New Testament. And so I want to take a look at some different aspects of Christ's intercessory work for us in the hope that it will encourage you. 
So the question is, how does Jesus provide intercession? What's that intercession mean? What's it entail? What's it look like? So here's eight things about this intercession. First, Jesus provides holy intercession. And uh, most of our text will come from Hebrews. So Hebrews 4, uh, 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, get this, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So the holiness of Christ's intercession matters because it means that it's pure. His motives are always pure. His love for us is always pure. We can always have full access to the Father because of His purity. You see, the corrupt religious leaders in Jesus' day did not have pure motives, but Jesus always does. None of us need to worry that Jesus' love is somehow lacking for us or that somehow Jesus' motives are wrong in what He wants us to do or in the way that He's interceding for us. No, his motives are always perfect, pure, and holy. Secondly, Jesus provides heavenly intercession, heavenly intercession. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens. So it's good to have friends and and others who intercede for us, who pray for us on our behalf, but there's no one like Jesus. What higher place could we go to than one who is at the right hand of God? Now, often people will involve high-ranking authorities in matters in their life. So let's just say, you know, you got into, into it with your neighbor over uh, a fence and you wanted to like put a fence on your property and the neighbor didn't want you to. And so maybe you knew, maybe your friend was um, the congressman. And so you call him like, hey, help me out here, you know, and, and you maybe could use him, right? And so, but there's no one like Jesus. There's no one higher than Jesus we can appeal to. And so that gives us the the best news possible, that we have an intercessor who is at the highest place that one could be. And only one who is supremely qualified could be in this place, and that's Jesus. Third, Jesus provides continual intercession. Continual intercession. In what ways? Well, He continually prays for believers. Hebrews 7.25 Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who would draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Christ's intercession involves prayers on your behalf continually. Don't know about you, but, that, but that's a good thought, right? Oftentimes we'll tell people, yeah, I'll pray for you. And what, like how long does it take, you know, on a good day? Um, you know, we, we try to remember those things. We write them down and stuff like that. But if we're being honest, it, it, can be, it can vary a lot. But we never have to worry about that with Jesus. He's never forgetting to intercede for us and to pray for us. It's continual. He continually defends believers. Romans 8, 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, was raised. <coughs> who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. So Jesus doesn't get tired. He doesn't need to take breaks. He is continually interceding to defend believers. And he continually lives to intercede for believers. 
As we've mentioned, it would do no good if the high priest dies and then you don't have anybody or someone new comes along. But Jesus, Hebrews 7.24, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So you may have a friend or or someone you know that, that has a high ranking place, but they could lose the election and then they're not there anymore. They could die and they're not there anymore. But with Jesus, we don't have to worry about any of that. Because he lives forever, his intercession will be forever. Fourth, Jesus provides unified intercession, unified intercession. So it's a mistake as we're talking about intercession to picture uh, Jesus and the Father uh, going after it or, or Jesus pleading with the Father, oh, Lord, you've got to accept these people. I know you don't want to. I know they're so messed up, but I'm just begging you, please listen to them and help them. There's no tension between the Father and the Son when it comes to this intercession right here. There's no division or conflict. The work of the triune God planned the the entire scope of redemption, uh, all of it, including Christ's intercession. So what that means is that we can't view Christ's intercession as a desperate pleading to the Father for something He doesn't want to do. The Father is loving. The Father is gracious. It's not that Jesus is trying to beg Him to be more loving to you. No, He already is. Neither is it Jesus having to remind the Father of things that He's forgetting to do. Lord, uh, I just want to put a bug in your ear. Um, don't know if you remember Sally out there, but it's uh, been a while since you checked on her. Um, might be a good idea if you uh, did something with that. No, we don't ever, that's never the issue, right? So what exactly is Christ's intercession? Well, again, it's part of God's redemptive plan from the beginning to secure sinners. Fifth, Jesus provides powerful and protective intercession. So his intercession frees us from the legal demands and condemnation that our sin places on us. As we saw there in Romans 8, 33 and 34, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So thanks to Christ's intercession, we have a legal ruling on our behalf. You know, if you got into a dispute with somebody and it was just a my word versus your word kind of a thing, and it wouldn't carry a lot of weight. But if you get a legal verdict in there, that carries a lot of weight. So we have all the weight we need, this legal verdict uh, in regards to our salvation. It's a legal ruling on our behalf. His intercession defeats our great accuser, Satan, who accuses the saints day and night before our God, Revelation 12, 10. And that's something to think about. Satan is very active in accusing us. Just because you don't see him or aren't aware of him doesn't mean he's off in the corner taking a nap. He is actively accusing us before the Father. And so how is he defeated? Not by us but by the work and intercession of Jesus Christ. Satan cannot overcome the intercession of Jesus Christ for you. No matter how hard he tries, how creative he is, or how much he spies on you, he can't defeat Christ's intercessions. So know this today, that Satan can't 
defeat Christ's intercessions for you. Even though Satan is waging war against your soul, even though he loves the fact that you might be weighed down with guilt, in God's courtroom, he can't even get a word out. Sixth, Jesus provides perfect and complete intercession. Perfect and complete intercession. So the Old Testament priests ultimately were lacking because they had to offer the same sacrifices on a continual basis. But in verse 12 in chapter 10 says this, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down on the right hand of God. So the intercession of Jesus is complete. There's nothing that needs to be added to it. In addition, it's to the uttermost. Hebrews 7.25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So to the uttermost carries the idea of completely and always. Because Jesus lives forever, he is able to completely and always save his people. He takes them all the way. So God's salvation is not, I carry you 99.99% of the way, and that last inch to the finish line, I'm going to give you a kick and hope you make it. No, it's all the way with, with Christ's work right there. None of them are lost. Able to save doesn't mean that Jesus has the potential to save. It carries the assurance of salvation. So who do we cling to then? Dead people and priests can't save us. Only a living one can. There's nothing we can add or need to add to Christ's intercession. And that's the good news. Seventh, Jesus provides personal and compassionate intercession. Personal and compassionate intercession. So leaders often delegate things, things that they might not want to do or that others can do. Uh, maybe others are qualified. But Jesus does not delegate his intercession. No one else shed blood for us. Jesus himself did. No one else intercedes for us. Not Mary, not the dead saints, no one. Christ alone is interceding for us. So think about that. When was the last time perhaps you thought about Jesus himself standing in your place? Your place. Not just someone else's place, but your place. He takes the time to stand in your place before the Father. His schedule is not too busy to fit you in. No, sorry, I've got uh, a number of people here. Um, check back next month. You're always fit into his schedule. His intercession is compassionate. Hebrews 2, 17 to 18 uh, says this, uh, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. So Jesus is merciful in his intercession. He knows what it's like to be tempted and suffer. He's experienced temptations as well. So moms, even though Jesus hasn't been a mother, he knows what it's like to experience temptation. He knows what it's like to be despised, to be ignored, to be taken for granted, to be hated, to be spit at. He knows what it's like to lose loved ones and to have death separate relationships. So because of Christ's intercession, God the Father relates to us in compassion. And eighth, Jesus provides a one-of-a-kind intercession. 
a one-of-a-kind intercession. So the intercession that Jesus gives is, is unlike any other kind of intercession that we could possibly receive. As I mentioned, it's true that other people and friends can pray for us, and that's good, but only Jesus is perfect, and only Jesus obtains results, the right results, we should say. Only Jesus author, offers authorized intercession. So we don't need to, nor should we pray to the saints who have died for us. We have the same access to the Father as they do. We have a perfect mediator. Why should there be a need for another? The Belgic Confession says this, Whom could we find who loved us more than he who laid down his life for us, even when we were his enemies? And if we seek for one who hath power and majesty, who is there that hath so much of both as he who sits on the right hand of the Father and who hath all power in heaven and on earth? Now, you may be wondering, why does Christ's intercession matter? Okay, I get that. That's great. Uh, maybe you have some objections to it. Yeah, I know that's wonderful, but see, I'm still weighed down. I'm still discouraged. I love the words of William Bridge who says, Perhaps you will complain, saying, Oh, but I am very tempted and cannot pray. Be humbled for this, and yet know this, that when you cannot pray, Christ prays for you, and He prays that you might pray. Perhaps you will complain, saying, Oh, but I labor under such and such conditions, such and such corruptions, and the devil is busy with me, exceedingly busy, and I cannot overcome them. And the devil stands at my right hand to tempt me and to lead me into such and such sins. Well, even if it be so, the Lord Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He has sat down on the right hand of God the Father till all his enemies are to be made his footstool. And your sins are his enemies. Therefore, be of good comfort, you people of the Lord. Is there ever a poor myrtle tree in a hollow, a soul that grows in a poor, dark condition? Be of good comfort. The Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest, has entered into heaven into the most holy place to intercede with God the Father for you. So why does Christ's intercession matter for us? Three reasons. Our acceptance. On what basis will you and I be accepted by the Father? It's by Jesus Christ on, on, the, on the basis of His work. So the intercession of Jesus provides the basis for our acceptance. Mothers, uh, you in particular may struggle with a works-oriented mindset, wondering, maybe struggling with being accepted, um, feeling like your acceptance is, is based off of what you do. Um, and it's Christ's intercession that guarantees that you are accepted. His acceptance is worth more than anyone else's, even your husband's. His acceptance is not based on how clean the house is, or how good the food is, or how many toys are on the floor, or how your, what preschool your kids got into, or how they compare with the other children. You know, his, his acceptance is, is based on himself and his work. Our confidence. So our sin and our struggles often weigh us down. They destroy this confidence that God really loves us, that, God's, that we have been forgiven and accepted by God. They threaten our perception of God's divine love. Christ's intercession challenges those thoughts and that guilt that we face. And then finally, one of the functions of the priest was to bless the people. It was to give the benediction upon the people. Jesus blesses the people, and even before he ascended into heaven, he lifted up his hands and blessed the disciples, Luke 24. 
So as you read the epistles, and especially in the New Testament, you see those themes of grace and mercy and peace being extended, being given these blessings. How do they come to us? Through the intercession of Jesus Christ. So as we end here, my, my hope and prayer is that you will meditate and drink richly in the fact that Jesus Christ is our intercessor. And his intercession is worth more than any other kind of intercession. So I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what particular struggles and, and questions and doubts and things wrestle in your mind. But my hope is the fact that Jesus is your intercessor brings you comfort and relief. Let's go to the Lord and ask him to apply these truths to our lives and situations. Our dear Heavenly Father, Lord, as we've uh, come this morning to give thanks for our mothers, um, just thank you for, for them. We also recognize that, as we've mentioned, that uh, it's not, today is not always an easy day for moms. Um, some would desire to be a mom, but never um, have that opportunity. Others have lost children or rebellious children or just a number of things that, that can be happening. And no matter, what, uh, no matter what moms are wrestling with today, and for that matter, any of the rest of us, no matter what we are wrestling with today, may we be encouraged and cheered to know by the fact that Jesus Christ is interceding for us. This very moment, as Satan tries to come and present a case against us, we have Jesus shutting him down. And for that, we are thankful. And we know that when we wake up tomorrow, if the Lord gives us life, we don't have to worry about this intercession because you, Jesus, will be interceding then just as you are right now. So maybe we go forward with this confidence. In your name we pray, amen.